You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, we have a bumper show today where we're going to be focusing on a number of different issues. We're going to start by looking at the US midterms and dissecting those results and what they mean uh, for the future and for Trump's political future. We'll then move on to talk about Brexit. There was a big mega poll uh, from Servation that was on Channel 4 earlier this week, which seemed to suggest that um, Britain has changed its mind about leaving the European Union. We're going to be looking at those numbers and what that means. I'm also going to spend some time looking at whether the comeback kid, David Cameron, you know, should he make a return? What does public opinion say about that? And we might even uh, make some time to talk about a consultation that wasn't or at least that's my view, um, some recent uh, survey, a recent survey of Momentum members that Momentum published. We'll be looking at that in detail, but also asking how significant might it be uh, in the coming weeks and months as Brexit negotiations reach their conclusion. So lots to cover, and I'm joined uh, as ever by my co-host Leo Barassi to go through the numbers. Leo, welcome. Hello, Kieran. So where do we start? Um, US midterms on, on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean... It's sort of a weird one, right? Because it was um, dramatic and exciting, but ultimately kind of at the center of the predictions, right? And what came out of it was what two weeks ago we would have said was the most likely outcome, right? Yeah, as a, as a British pollster, it's quite unusual to be sitting there uh, the day after with all the polls being correct and uh, all the sort of pundits got it reasonably, uh, reasonably right. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, when I look at the British coverage of this, it always it always strikes me that you know there's a lot of people that are quite ignorant about U.S. politics that are commenting commenting on this uh, on this stuff. You're absolutely right. I mean, the Democrats were predicted to take the House. That was a national election. Um, they won that very comfortably in terms of the popular vote. In, insofar as that means anything, maybe about seven points. It looks like it might end up being. Uh, and then they obviously lost ground in the Senate, the Democrats, and the Repub Republicans took a couple of seats there. And, um, you know, Trump holds the Trump and the Republicans hold the Senate. So a divided government um, in the US, but, you know, twas ever thus, right? I mean, that seems to be the, um, the, the, the normal mode of American politics. Well, although it obviously hasn't been the normal mode for the last couple of years, right? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I think that, you know, you've had Trump with... Um, I wouldn't say untrammeled power, because even when um, a president holds both houses of Congress, they're usually, at least in the modern era, reasonably close. And, um, you know, that the nature of American politics is that you'll get quite a lot of in independent minded, um, particularly senators um, who, who have their sort of own own sort of unique take on things. Um, so not all Republicans are just slavishly loyal to the president, for example. Um, likewise, in the past, not all Democrats are slavishly loyal to previous Democrat presidents. So, you know, it is going to be a change. And I think that you know, now that um, the Democrats have the House, um, you know, it's going to change the the political weather in Washington significantly. And it's going to have a profound impact on whether Trump wins re-election. Mm. So obviously, there's various things that the House can now do in terms of investigations and subpoenas and generally blocking of, of Trump's agenda. But I guess the question I'm trying to get my head around is how, what can we read from this in terms of where things are now going in two years, I suppose, both in terms of the presidential election and am I right in thinking now that there's going to be the next wave of Senate elections in two years as well? Yeah, so the Senate's up every every two years, a third of it, I should say, is up every two years. I think one of the things I want to challenge on this podcast is this kind of narrative that's come out, I saw it in the, um, I think from Fraser Nelson in A Spectator, that somehow almost this blue wave didn't happen or there was this... Um, I can't remember the exact uh, phrase he used, but 
this idea that this wasn't a great night for Democrats or it wasn't as good as it could have been and uh, actually Trump Trump will be reasonably happy. I mean, Trump will say that he's happy, but in reality, as I've said, the popular vote was um, very strong for the Democrats. Um, in Republican terms, I think the last time they lost this many seats was uh, in terms of a net loss was after Watergate. So in 1974, I think I'm right in saying, I haven't got right, it in front of me. So, I mean, you know, this was a pretty bad night for the president. And there is, to a large extent, um, it's an accident of geography that, or, or, or timing that the, the map was pretty friendly to the Republicans. So, uh, you know, that they held the Senate. So I, th I think that before we come on to some of the detail there, I mean, <clears throat> in terms of you asked about how it might shake out. Well, ultimately, that, that power of subpoena and that power of investigation, I think, has been glossed over in the last sort of 48 hours. That is going to be highly significant with the Mueller investigation, um, the recent firing of Jeff Sessions. You know, that if, if the Democrats can create this impression of um, the Trump administration being murky and corrupt and just dodgy generally, that can have a real big impact in 2020. But sorry, go on, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, um, I just wanted to, to sort of pick up your point. I do feel that there's a certain hipster element of uh, British punditry of wanting to say Trump is actually doing really well and he's much more popular than you'd think. And overall, he's on course for re-election. And I just feel that it, it's, it's the, such safe commentary to make because you're kind of interesting and a bit quirky and a bit different from the crowd. And no one's going to come back to you in two years if and when he loses and, and say, ah, look, you were wrong. And it's just, it's sort of a marker that people are putting down to be able to say in a couple of years, look, I told you so. But the truth is, he is still unpopular. He is still doing much worse than you would expect for a president who's uh, fortunate enough to be in charge with such a strong economy. And look, the bookmakers are putting an unnamed Democratic nominee as being the favorite at the moment. So if you're saying that Trump is the, is the likely favorite at the moment, you have to say why you are right and the people who are putting money on it are wrong. Yeah, one of my um, immediate reactions when I saw the results coming in was that, oh, um, the Republicans have held Florida, both in terms of the Senate race and the gubernatorial race. And that, that has long-term implications because Florida, as we know, um, is a really important state in presidential elections. So to put numbers to that for listeners' benefit, um, so Trump won um, 304, I think it was, electoral college votes. You need 270 to win. Florida's worth 29. So assuming everything else stays the same, Flipping Florida on its own isn't enough for the Democrats to win the White House, but it gets you an awful long way there. And so I thought oh, the fact that the Republicans did well in Florida wasn't great for them. But it now looks like there might there might be some recounts or at least a recounts for a possibility in Florida because the race was so close. So maybe the fact that it, it they, they just went, got over the line um, in this instance on the Republican side uh, isn't as significant as I, I first thought. But just on the point of 2020, I mean, briefly, I mean, in my lifetime... So I was born in 1984, right? So in my lifetime, we've had, um, what, uh, five presidents that weren't Trump, and four of them have been two-term, Reagan, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. One of them wasn't Bush Sr., um, you know, very much an anomaly for the fact that he followed two terms of his own party in power, right, So in, in the presidency. So Reagan, being a Republican, had two terms. He was followed by Bush. Bush didn't win re-election. So a bit like if Hillary Clinton had won uh, against Trump, you know, she might have found it very hard to win a second term. So I do understand that, you know, two-term presidencies are very common. I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, it's definitely the case that Trump will lose, but I think it's going to be, a, it's, it's up for grabs. And I think that's 
maybe um, an easy thing to say, but it doesn't feel like the way the British press is portraying Trump's chances in 2020. I think there's a sense that he's going to win. Actually, mm. it's going to be really to, close. To be honest, I, I even now I feel you're being too generous. I feel like the weight of assumption is he is likely to win and this unpopularity that was expected hasn't materialized and um you're you're almost seen as as being the outlier now if you're uh, saying that you think that he's likely to lose i guess the left are pessimistic and and the right want to have a bit of told you soism against against the left um but just just before we move on i guess i also wanted to get your take on the senate because um, one of the things that I think I hadn't appreciated until the last couple of days is how much the Senate map, obviously, this time around was very bad for the Democrats. And they've unsurprisingly lost a bit of ground. They had incredibly hard races. But I guess I'd assume that would mean that in two years time, the the map would be much more favorable and the Democrats would therefore be likely to take the Senate. But I think maybe that's not right. Yeah, I think I think one of the um, again f- for the benefit of people that maybe don't follow this so closely. So the Senate has two two senators per state. Um, the House, it, so the House is done by the by population, meaning that big states like Texas, New York, Florida, etc., will have more Congress people than um, the rest of the country by virtue of population. The, the Senate is literally two senators per state, regardless of their size. Deliberately so to avoid um, individual states being overrun by other bigger ones, but the unintended consequences, at least you know, as, as politics stands now, are that these small white rural states have a sort of disproportionate influence vis-a-vis their population to political power um, when it comes to the Senate. So, actually, like so, California is only ever going to have two senators, right? For example. Um, so, whereas same is true of Montana, same is true of I don't know North Dakota, which the Republicans won this time around. Um, Wyoming, you you, you could go, go through the go through the list. So, yeah, I mean, as long as the the politics of America seems to be split on this urban rural, um, you know, on education grounds, on racial grounds, as it is at the moment, um, then yeah, the Republicans should be reasonably confident about the Senate, and that has obviously huge implications for. Um, uh, the Supreme Court and at the extreme level impeachment. Mm. So, yeah, even without going to impeachment, I mean, fundamentally that means that well, today there's been um, uh, bad uh, bad news about the the ill health of uh, of Ginsburg, one of the Supreme Court uh, judges, and um, I suppose the implication of what you're saying is that even with a Democratic president, um, there shouldn't the Democratic uh, inclined people shouldn't uh, expect to have the ability to put liberal judges on the Supreme Court even after 2020. Yeah, absolutely. But um, the 2020 is going to be really interesting. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you saw, I, I got into a bit of a uh, back and forth with uh, Labrook's uh, politics today. I put my put my 50 quid on Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I don't normally bet that much, folks. What, but, uh, what did you get? What uh, were the odds? So 11 to 1. So it was so, so pretty generous. So Shadzi Matthew Shaddock, who uh, who runs uh, Labrook's politics, um, he he posted uh, the odds for the um, Democrat nominee next time, and it had Elizabeth Warren eight to one. And it, to be honest with you, um, Kamala Harris is at five, and then everyone else is kind of, I mean, it's not like she's the rock solid favorite or anything, but everyone else is around ten, eight, ten, fifteen, whatever. So I thought, oh, Elizabeth Warren eight to one, I'll have some of that, and then and then. And then Shadzi, Shadzi put it to 10 to 1 because I said that. So a bit cheeky. 
so I thought, I thought, <laughs> well, backing it, then it must be too generous. Well, right? exactly. So, uh, you know, I will look forward to Sajid Javid becoming prime minister and I can take him to the cleaners then. But um, no, I, I put my, I, I, I think he successfully goaded me, Leo, to be honest with you. So I've put my money on Elizabeth Warren. But I mean, that's for another day, I think, uh, in terms of that's just the Democrat nominee. So she doesn't have to win the presidency. So I'm feeling quite good about that bet. But yeah, it's wide open. And I think we'll come back to 2020 in another episode. Um, <clears throat> let's move on uh, to events closer to home, because I'm sure some of our regular listeners who don't care about America too much might be sick of us talking about it. So let's talk about Brexit, because nobody's sick of <laughs> nobody's sick of uh, talking about that. So there was a... Brexit. It's been a long time since I've heard that word. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we feel like we well, I keep saying this. It feels like we're reaching the business end, but um, you know, we're going to have to eventually, I suppose. So it was a great program on early this week and uh, on Channel 4, um, all about Brexit, which is based on... Um, some analysis by Salvation and Chris Hanratty, um, both sort of friends of the show. Uh, Chris has been on before, and uh, has, so has Damien at Salvation. And it was a really great show. I have to say, first of all, it was a great show, great bit of work from uh, Salvation and Chris. And it was great to see a, a politics program that was based around data and particularly around public opinion because you, you had the guests in the studio, Nigel Farage and um, others, but you know, they had to be, public opinion was put to them. And, um, you know, okay, it wasn't an election, but it was almost presented like that, which has its limitations. But um, it was still a good show. I, mean, I don't know, Leo, did you catch it? I mean, what, what, did you, what did you take away from uh, some of those numbers? Uh, well, I, di- I didn't see it apart from the uh, um, clip of the woman rolling her eyes be- behind Nigel Farage that <laughs> uh, seemed to capture the, the mood of many people. I mean, I guess that the headline thing from it was this is a massive survey that has shown what we've seen in some other surveys, which is uh, that now we're at up to 5446 uh, remain leave, which isn't new. And who knows whether or not we would call it the highest quality survey to have done that because there have been some other pretty high quality surveys to to have found this. But I think it's another pretty clear bit of evidence that overall, the whole public, so I think we might want to talk about who this sample is of in terms of voting public versus general public. But the country now has quite clearly, I think, got a small majority in favour of Remain. And I think that is pretty irrefutable. Yeah, so just to give people some of the methodological backgrounds, and, and we won't go into too much of the methodology here because I'm hoping to have Chris or or someone from Salvation on in the next couple of weeks. haven't asked them yet, but hopefully they'll oblige. Um, so this was an MRP model that Chris has run with Salvation. Now, Salvation have done a big survey of, I think it was more than 20,000 um, completed interviews. And what these um, what these regression models do is they basically use survey data and extract probabilities for what different types of people um, that sort of look at what different types of people will do. So the cliche is, you know, if you're a young graduate woman from London, you're probably going to vote Remain versus if you're a sort of old white man from Wigan. I'm being very stereotypical, but you get the idea. Then you're probably voted leave. And obviously, it's far more complicated than that. But, um, you know, these models use the survey data um, to create probabilities of how different people might vote. They then extrapolate that to the cens- using the census to different local authority areas because the, the census obviously tells you uh, what proportion of different people are in different areas. And therefore, you can get like a, a constituency by constituency, or in this case, a local authority by local authority um, um, split of how these uh, surveys break down. So um, very much a cutting edge research, very similar to 
uh, what YouGov did with great success at the last general election. So I think it's worth listeners bearing in mind that we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the survey data and this model, um, but that's kind of what they did. So the point is they have a massive sample size, 20,000 people, but then, so that in itself is useful um, and tells us these headline figures that we might refer to, so the 5446, for example. But what they're also doing from that is extrapolating from that large sample size to say what's going on in particular local authorities. Yeah, so I think the key point here is that the reason for the big sample size, insofar as I can tell it, and, and you know, Chris and the guys at Salvation will um, expand upon this and, and do expand upon this in their written work, is it's to get that regional breakdown. So in a normal su uh, survey of like 2,000 people, I mean, you, you can look at region, but you really shouldn't um, sort of extrapolate it as fact. So for example- well, They're not designed for region, right? Because they, they don't have the internal weights there, right? So you might have in Scotland entirely reasonably, you might have 65% female, 35% male, just because that's the way the survey broke out. So in, a, in a normal bad. poll. Exactly. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is, I mean, I'm sure region isn't the only reason, but to get to that local authority, so to get to like the northeast and get a reasonable view of what's going on in Newcastle and Sunderland and Durham and different areas of, of the northeast, then you need that bigger sample size, basically. Okay, so given that you can look at this more local level, you'd be, be able to in a normal poll, what can we learn from doing that? I mean, particularly in terms of trying to understand if and where opinion has shifted. So I think the fascinating thing about this work is that they've been able to look at things by um, region, as we've said, which means that not only can you say, okay, we think that um, Remain would win this time, we can say why. And the main reason seems to be that um, Remain areas haven't got more Remain so much as leave areas, some of the strongest leave areas have got less leavey, if that makes sense. So, and it seems to be primarily... Uh, in labour leave areas, that the um, they still skew leave, they still go leave, um, but to, to a much um, lesser extent. So I'm trying to find an example in a long list here. So let's take Burnley for example. So 66% voted leave in 2016, um, but now this model is saying that's 54%. So if this was replicated in a real world situation, um, then you know Burnley would still vote leave as it were, but by less of a margin. And similarly, Wigan goes from 64% leave to 52. Uh, I'm picking places at random here. Stoke, 69% uh, to 58. So you get the idea. And and all this all this uh, data is available um, on on on, on um, Salvation's website. So I think that what really interested me was that um, Chris has run this analysis by by region. And the northeast seems to be the region with the uh, well, two biggest are the northeast and the northwest. But the northeast in particular seems to be the region where there's been a bigger swing against uh, away from leave on the basis of these numbers. So clearly, um, if these figures are to be believed, um, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be believed in terms of them being you know, wrong numbers as such, but if people think these are genuine trends that are permanent, it could have a long-term political implication on um, on what happens in Westminster. Mm. And I think it's also useful for helping us to understand um, why they might have or why overall national opinion might be shifting. And obviously, at this point, we're getting into speculation. But if you're looking at the areas that are becoming less leavy, um, it's quite striking that they're tending to be more deprived 
regions and um, and boroughs. So um, just looking at the list of the places that have most switched their support, just to run down the top few, there's Newham, Barking and Dagenham, Blind Eye Gwent, Bolsover, Luton, Slough, uh, Sandwell in West Midlands, Burnley, Southampton, Wigan. I mean, this this is not the home counties. This is not stockbroker belt um, that was uh, perhaps voting leave for one set of re- reasons. The, this seems to be the more deprived places that might have been voting leave for a different set of reasons. And you know the poll doesn't go into this. It doesn't doesn't tell tell us any more than that. But I think it is striking when we think about what might be going on. In, in different groups of leave-supporting voters' minds about what's happened since the referendum. And it might very well be that there are Labour MPs that are representing what they consider to be you know, strongly leave constituencies that look at some of this data and think to them and maybe feel a bit more emboldened to um, you know, uh, pursue the, um, you know, the second referendum or, or the agenda that they, they, they really instinctively want to. So, I mean, whether they should do that or not is a different question, but you can see how, how that happens. Yeah, um, as I think we've we've talked about before, I think this is one of those times <clears throat> in, in British politics which do seem to be coming up, uh, not that rarely in recent years, where pu- uh, public opinion polling has the potential to have a direct influence in the real world and in what politicians think. And uh, this being some serious good quality polling by serious researchers, I think, um, does mean that it does demand to be taken seriously by uh, MPs who are trying to think are trying to understand what their constituents think. But what do you reckon? Because I know when we've had debates like this in the past, you've been a bit more hesitant about polling that has shown this swing towards Remain. Yeah, so I mean, I think that I, I echo the fundamental principle, which is I think that there's clearly been a shift towards Remain. I was debating this with Chris Curtis from YouGov on Twitter the other day. Um, I'm still of the view that... I'm cautious about this. It's not to say that I think it can often be misinterpreted as me saying that I think, oh, you know, leave would win again, definitely. In a, you know, it, I don't know that there, there's a lot, but I think there's more uncertainty here that sometimes these numbers uh, that is sometimes presented um, when these numbers are published. So to go through a few quick things on this. So using the Salvation data tables. So 7% are undecided for a start. Now, it's not unusual for undecided people to be re- removed from voting intention figures, but so I, won't, I don't want to dwell on that point too much. But just as a basic starting point, 7% are undecided. They get removed from the poll. Leave voters are a bit more undecided than Remain. Uh, it doesn't have a huge impact, but it has a bit of an impact in a, in, a, in a situation where those leave voters stopped being don't know and will leave again in a, in a referendum campaign. That could um, that could help the, uh, the leave side. And... But I think the key thing for me is there aren't huge uh, there aren't a huge number of switches between leave and remain directly. the The bulk of this uh, uh, the bulk of the strength of the lead uh, for remain in these polls, both the Salvation one and the big ones uh, for YouGov uh, uh, for the People's Vote campaign by YouGov, tend to come from these new voters, which we assume are young people or people that didn't vote last time, and they they skew massively remain. Now that is entirely plausible. It's p- perfectly logical that you know there's a new group of young people entering the electorate, uh, and they skew Remain, and that tips Remain over the edge next time. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, when you when you're sampling, um, you know, the British public, is is there a risk that you oversample these new voters that you that you skew too much in in you know in favour of them? There's a real risk, I think, that you almost don't get an accurate reflection of whatever the hypothetical next electorate will be. 
And I mean, that's the point. It's hypothetical. So to, to, to put some numbers to this, um, I, I, did, I did some sort of re, uh, back of a fag packet sort of calculations using Servation's data. So if only, so you, so you talked about um, 54, 46. If only 2016 voters voted the next time, obviously that wouldn't happen in practice, but if only they did, um, Remain would go down to 51.3. And then if you subsequently put the don't knows back to where they voted last time, it'd go down to 50.78. Now, I'm not, now those are both artificial things that I've done, but I'm just making the point that there's a, underneath the bonnet of these numbers, there's a bit more uncertainty than you might think. Mm. I mean, I don't think I can argue with anything that you said there per se, but I guess I feel like we're we're talking about two different things here because um, there's certainly an argument that could be made, and I think you've made it well there, that if there was another referendum, then relying on these figures to tell us what's going to happen in that other referendum is difficult because it's not attempting to model an electorate and who would turn out so that's fair enough but i do think that it's important to recognize that politicians will and should look at these figures of public opinion to understand what the public as a whole thinks and that doesn't just mean people who are going to turn up and vote on election day but it is important to know that in a representative sample of the public 54 percent would vote remain now and even if that's not what's going to happen in practice i think that is significant for influencing the debate and so in a way it's sort of it's slightly academic because there would presumably have to be some other kind of vote to overturn the last one but um i think the fact that the opinion has moved in this direction should be influencing politics but what i'm saying is that that fifth I'm disputing to some extent that 54% number or 53% in Salvation's tables and 54% in the model produced by Chris Hanratty. I think there's like there's at least some debate about how clear that majority for Remain is now. And the one thing I'd add to it, add to this further, if if we assume there has to be a second referendum to overturn the first one, there was another question in the Salvation poll that said um, basically, would you support a second referendum um, with Remain on the ballot paper? And, um, okay, the headline numbers were 43% would, 37 wouldn't. But there were um, there were one in seven Remain voters, new Remain voters, so ones that are uh, currently saying they'll vote Remain, obvious 54%, basically. One in seven of them said they don't want another referendum. So I guess all I'm saying is, I'm not necessarily saying that Remain definitely wouldn't win next time. I'm just, I'm just saying that I don't think we can look at these polls and go, well, the country's changed its mind because there's ambiguity over just to what extent it has. And even among a good chunk of those Remainers, they don't want to vote again. So how can how can you be a Remainer that doesn't want to vote again and yet say that, oh, the country's changed its mind? See what I mean? Yeah, well, well, yeah, but I think it, it would be an entirely reasonable position for a Remainer to think, look, I don't want this to happen. I would rather it was stopped, but I'm going to respect the fact that there was a vote and just try and make it happen. I mean, I think, for example, Danny Finkelstein, the Times columnist, has been arguing exactly that. So, yeah, I'm not convinced that, that that's a, a particularly weird position. I guess what I'm not really getting is your point about um, uh, arguing that the country's opinion hasn't shifted. I mean, are, isn't this poll and other polls that we've had in the past very clear evidence that okay. if, if you start with an electorate <clears throat> that's weighted to the to the referendum results, then you get you do see a shift. I mean, isn't that clear? Yeah, okay. okay. There's been a shift in, in opinion, but I guess what I'm saying, I guess that's a slightly nuanced difference between saying there's been a shift towards remain, but do, does the country actually want to remain? 
I think they're slightly different things, right? So if you yeah, ask... Yeah, no, I, t- I take that. Yeah, it's a different question you're talking about there. So like, Does a country want to stop this now versus if it could, if it could in a cost-free way, make it not happen, then would they? And I get that's a different question. Yeah, because if you've got 54% and you take one in seven of them off, then that isn't a majority in favour of remaining now. So I don't know. I mean, listen. Yeah, that's a bit of dodgy back of the envelope there, isn't it? Well, yes. I'm sure you can find some leavers who say that they would want a second referendum. Yeah, you have got some, to be fair. You've got about, uh, let me see, where is it? About the same amount, uh, 16% would support. So, yeah, I don't know. I think um, we'll have to wait and see how it transpires. I mean, for me, this is all a bit of a moot point in a way, depending on what happens in the next uh, month or so, right? And uh, how things shake out next year. It's yeah, also- I mean, ultimately, I think its importance is in telling MPs who are looking at their options that most people now would prefer not to be leaving the EU. Yeah, I mean, let's um, let's move on to uh, the man who got us here. See that nice segue there, Leo? That was good. Um, uh, David Cameron. There was some talk, I don't know if it was last week, about him wanting a a return to politics. And that's, that's prompted a flurry of polls, or at least a couple of polls, about what people think of David Cameron and past prime ministers. So I know you've been looking at this. I'm fascinated by what, um, you know, what people do think of David Cameron coming back and, and how opinions have shifted about him over time. So this is a fun one because we, uh, we looked at this um, about, about 18 months ago, a ton bit more than that, in February last year. And we asked um, for the last five prime ministers, Thatcher onwards, um, uh, for, e- for each, please indicate if you think they did a good or a bad job as prime minister. And what we saw uh, last year was, uh, broadly speaking, um, past Tory prime ministers are rated quite well, past Labour prime ministers are rated very badly. And that's largely driven by the fact that Tory voters uh, tend to be positive about their ex-prime ministers, Labour voters tend to be negative about their ex-prime ministers. Um, so we ran that same question again um, with opinion. And, um, well, there's been a bit of a shift. So Thatcher, Major and Blair haven't moved at all. Um, But Gordon Brown, interestingly, has been rehabilitated somewhat. So he was, by a reasonable distance, seen as the uh, Prime Minister who was most seen to have done a bad job last time. Uh, That's now, now no longer the case. He's at about the same level as both Blair and Cameron. And that's also partly because Cameron has lost ground, has lost quite a bit of ground since last time. So um, whereas Gordon Brown went from a net of minus 35 to a net of minus 25, so gained 10 points net, Cameron went the other way. He went from minus uh, 16 to minus 28, so lost 12 points net. Um, And what's quite striking there is that Brown gained support among everyone. So it wasn't just uh, among Labour voters. It was across the political spectrum. Whereas Cameron has particularly lost ground among Tory and UKIP voters, which um, I don't know, I guess it's sort of interesting. It's sort of um, in a way you would think perhaps that it would be Remainers who would be more uh, dissatisfied with him over the last year, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Maybe he was seen as the guy that was on Team Remain at the time. So does that mean does that mean that David Cameron is the least popular of the modern prime ministers, or is Blair still? Uh, well, well, he is, but only just. You know, it's it's basically within margin of error. But but here's a quiz question for you. So guess who, after Margaret Thatcher, is is the is the one of these five prime ministers who's most seen to have done a good job? After Thatcher. Yeah, after Thatcher, who is who stands out. 
Uh, I'm so going to. I'm the last four. I'm going to guess based on my Westminster bubble, uh, succumbing to the Westminster bubble hat, that it's John Major. It's Tony Blair. Oh right. So go on. Tell us. Tell us the numbers. Twenty three percent said that Blair did a good job. Now I've got to say I'm kind of cheating a bit here because it's all within the margin of error. Cameron was twenty two. Brown and Major were twenty percent. But there you go. Despite received wisdom, Blair of the last four prime ministers is the one who is most seen to have done a good job. Things things can only get better, of course. Um, so. What do we think this means? I mean, I, do we take this Cameron comeback seriously? I mean, I sort of dismissed it. It must be some mischief making, but it did seem to like... Well, it's, it's, it's the David Miliband, isn't it? It's a coded article here. It's a friend, friends of, of, give a quote there. He's not, in, know, but he's, not in, he's not in Parliament. So he's going to come back in Parliament to be a foreign secretary. I mean, it doesn't seem very likely. Come on, is he really going to bother standing for election? I mean, surely it's a much nicer life for him going and getting some nice directorships. I think he's stuck in his shed by all accounts. Um, well, yeah, you know, come on, he's procrastinating writing his book, right? Which, uh, you know, you uh, get halfway through chapter four and you think, oh, God, do I have to do this? <laughs> Spoken from experience, Leah. Oh, yes. Um, let's finish with this momentum in inverted commas consultation on Brexit. And it's something that I wanted to talk about with polling matters because, um, you know, it speaks to a lot of why we do this, uh, why we do this podcast. So momentum, um, they went out to their members on Brexit, um, on in October through to November, um, 6,570, uh, people responded. Um, so, and, and then, uh, the, the, the respondents were weighted, I think, to the proportion of the membership in different regions. Um, well, I'm not sure. Is that that's right? Is that right? Actually. No, hang on. I'm trying they to read say the participation was proportionate. I oh, don't pro- okay, maybe it wasn't weighted. weighted it. Okay, fine. It wasn't weighted, but they reckon it was proportionate. Anyway, um, so the, some of the headlines: 92% of members want all Labour MPs to vote down Theresa May's Brexit deal. One can only speculate why that was the number one uh, headline. 89% believe no deal should be rejected. 82% believe Brexit is going to make things worse for friends, family, and community. Um, 41%, while 41% support a public vote. Uh, in all circumstances, uh, a total of 57% either prioritise a general election over a public vote or do not want any public vote. Such, I mean, let's... Oh, I'm rolling up my sleeves. Um, and then 97% uh, signed, uh, signed a petition... 97% of respondents signed a petition calling on May to immediately end the uncertainty around the rights and status of EU citizens living in the UK and UK citizens living elsewhere in the EU. So you could, we'll, we'll probably tweet this out later. I already have in the past, so people can look at it themselves. But those are the main findings. I read those out because clearly that's the message that Momentum wants to come from this. But I just thought some of the question wording in this was appalling. So it starts off innocuously enough with questions like, do you think Brexit is more likely to make things better or worse for your friends, family and community? That out, that one can't really complain about, but it then goes on to um, basically present a series of Labour Party policies and inviting their members to agree with it. So I won't read them all out because it would take too long. But there's one here that says, um, "Do you agree with the motion passed at conference, <laughs> leading um, that if the government's deal does not meet Labour's tests, all Labour MPs should vote against it?" Um, and then it lists Labour's tests. Ninety-two percent agree that all Labour MPs should vote against uh, any deal which does not meet Labour's tests. Um, do you agree with the motion passed at conference that a no-deal Brexit should be rejected as a viable option? And it goes on and on and on. Um, then we have, assuming, the Tory Bre- assuming that Tory Brexit is voted down in Parliament, the Labour Party has said that as a first priority there should be a general election so the public can judge whether to support the government's plan for Brexit. And do you agree that all Labour MPs should vote to maximise the possibility of a general election? And it goes on and on and on. And basically, a series of questions that present Labour's policy and uh, lead people to support it. 
But one, the question I thought was the most uh, was the most striking was on this question of a second referendum or a public vote, because inexplicably here it does set out uh, diff in different individual options rather than an up down yes no. Um, do you support or oppose a second referendum or a people's vote or whatever? It puts in the variable of a general election. So it gives people the option of saying, um, I support a public vote remaining on the table as an option if there is no general election. 28% uh, agree with that. I support committing now to a public vote, but only if there is no general election. 12% support that. I support committing now to a public vote in all circumstances. 41% uh, uh, say that. 17% do not support a public vote. 2% don't know. I think so I'm so confused by these answer choices here. What's the difference between I support a public vote remaining on the table as an option if there is no general election and I support committing now to a public vote, but only if there is no general election? It's a very good question. Um, remaining on the table versus committing now. I don't know. Well, there you go. And somehow they've managed to total that up. to They've totaled up all of the ones that aren't. I support committing now to a public vote in all circumstances. They've added those all up together under the banner of prioritizing a general election or do not want any public vote, which for the life of me, I don't see how you can get that from people saying, I support a public vote remaining on the table as an option if there is no general election. Yeah, and look, you know, I've, I've spent a good part of this podcast today explaining why I, I think we should be very careful about saying that the public have definitively shifted towards a position of wanting to remain after all, right? But let's be clear about this. This is not really a consultation in any meaningful way. It doesn't even ask about remain versus leave. It doesn't ask, do you think it should be Labour Party policy to try and reverse Brexit? It clearly, very, very clearly puts Labour policy in front of members and asks them to rubber stamp it. And in the one instance where they do try and, um, you know, look at the thorny issue of a second referendum or a in this case, it calls it a public vote. It explicitly spins the findings to suggest that people that they don't want one. You could easily have said, um, using these exact same numbers, that what would it have been? Eighty-one percent support a people's vote. I think that's right. Yeah, uh, or, or, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it took us twenty-eight percent support uh, a public vote remaining on the table if there's no election. Twelve percent support committing now to a vote, but only if there's no general election. And forty-one uh, percent want one regardless. So, uh, yeah. So eighty-one percent of Momentum members kind of want a people's vote, really. And I think we all know what the answer would be if they literally just gave an up-down, yes or no, should it be Labour policy to have one? Look, it's up to the Labour Party what their official policy on this is. I understand why they'd be reluctant to call for a second vote, why they're really cautious about that. I've outlined some of the reasons why they might ought to be. But let's not present this as members-led democracy. Um, it's quite clearly just trying to rubber stamp a decision that's already been made. Yeah, so I think so. But I also think there is more uh, something more important than just a kind of spin element of this. And that's that's this question four, which is the one that asks, assuming that Tory Brexit is voted down in Parliament, Labour has said as a first priority, there should be a general election. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Do you agree that all Labour MPs should vote to maximise possibility of a general election? Yes, 92%. All Labour MPs should prioritise maximising the possibility of a general election. Now, the reason I think that's really important is there's a figure here that I bet Momentum are going to use of saying that um, their members prioritise, 92% of their members prioritise a general election over everything else. And I just don't think that that is a fair question by any means because essentially what's up for grabs here is if uh if a deal is put on the table and the option is should labor mps vote for the deal 
to be able to get any kind of deal that gets through Parliament? Or should they deliberately vote against it in order to get no deal, in order to bring down the government, which is an entirely plausible prospect that might be on the table? then Momentum are going to say 92% of their members would rather vote for no deal if that means bringing down the government than vote for a deal in order to whatever arguments you might make yeah. for the deal. Yeah, and you and can... I just don't think that's a... That's a it's, I just don't think this has been asked in a plausible way. Yeah, and, and, and if Labour policy was the reverse, that we're going to vote for it because we want to... We think the... Um... You know the economy. We think be... the good of the country is better than party politics. Yeah, you, you could word a question that says, "Don't you think it's right that Jeremy Corbyn stands up for Labour members' jobs by not, you know, etc., etc., etc." So I don't know. Look, I mean, we won't spend too long on this. Um, people can judge for themselves, but I'm going to be very picky about this if it does come up in the next few weeks. Well, I think the nicest thing you could say about it is they didn't have the chutzpah to call it a poll. At least they just called it a consultation. Indeed. Um, but that's all we've got time for for this week's Polling Matters podcast. Got through a lot there, Leo, didn't we? Um, uh, very, uh, very uh, enjoyable episode this week. Um, hopefully you liked it too. So if you do like what you hear, please do share us on social media as usual. Um, like, like, like the podcast on Facebook or other podcast apps. Give us a nice rating. It all helps um, grow our audience and we very much appreciate it. But for now, thanks as ever for listening and have a great weekend.